In our passage, Romans 6, 15 to 18, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a common objection or a common false interpretation of being released from the law or not being under the punishment or judgment of the law. He deals with it in verses 15 and following. Our portion today is 15 to 18 to understand his refutation of the foolish and destructive argument that since we're not under law and we're under grace, therefore we are free to sin. That is foolish and it is destructive to think that way because one who thinks that way has not first properly understood the gospel. If one first properly understands the gospel, that thought would not enter his mind. That thought enters the mind of the wicked. It comes from the flesh. It comes from Satan and society. It does not come from the new heart. It does not come from the Holy Spirit. It comes from outside and inside wicked sources. So the apostle, understanding human nature, sinful human nature, he addresses the question in verse 15. And it's necessary in verse 15 because of what he said in verse 14. Let's see the connection. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. He says, we're not under law, but under grace. What did he mean? That we're not under law, but under grace. He meant we're not under the curse of the law. We're not under the condemnation of the law. We're not under the punishment of the law. But now we are under the blessings of grace. Now we have the fruit of God's work in us, working because of His grace. We are under the control of God's grace, no longer under the control or the punishment of the law. Because we were under the punishment of the law, we beforehand were under the control of sin. And the law said that if you are sinning, you deserve to die. Therefore, your punishment is death. That's the con contrast that he made in the previous verses, even in verse 14. If one is no longer under the power of sin and therefore the punishment of the law, if that is no longer the case, does it mean, since we have grace, that we're free to do what we want, that we are free to sin? Was the purpose of God's grace in us to give us permission, allowance, license to sin? No. The answer is absolutely no. If we properly understand the gospel, we would not even think of sinning again, willfully and adamantly, stubbornly sinning again. We would be seeking to rectify sin in our life, to resolve it in our life, to overcome it. So, 15, he says, what then? What is the conclusion? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Is it permitted, since we are not under the punishment of the law, because we were under the power of sin, is it permitted now to sin? That is the natural question from the flesh. The flesh wants to rail against God and God's holiness and say, yes, now that he has taken the penalty away from me, 
Now I have a license, I have permission to sin. That is the question, verse 15. Everyone asks this question in one way or another. The redeemed, the new heart, would not even presume to want to do this. But in relation to others and in relation to the flesh, the old man in us, the old man or the people of the world and Satan working through the the world would cause this question to be asked in order to justify their sin, their rebellion against God. Well, he knows, and therefore he says, may it never be. That thought should never be entertained. That thought should never be pursued, let alone to fruition that we sin against God willingly under the false interpretation, under the pretext that we're not under law but under grace. In fact, many, many over the centuries, many false interpreters of the Bible, false teachers and false prophets, false prophetesses, they have said that since we are not under law, we are under grace, therefore we have so-called freedom in Christ to live as we please. God does not have obedience for us. God does not have standards for us. God does not have statutes and laws for us. He has nothing prescribed as the way of living. There is no need to pursue holiness or righteousness. There's no need to do anything like that. The only thing is that now we have Christ and now we can do as we please. They actually say it based on verse 14. But the apostle in verse 15 removes that possibility completely away. It's impossible to say that. Then, in verse 16, as is typical of the prophets and the apostles, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? This truth in verse 16 Presented as a question, he says, do you not know? The Bible will tell us, do you not know? Or ask us, do you not know? When what we should know is obvious. It's obvious. It's as plain as night and day. It's as plain as good and evil. It's obvious to us what is right and what is wrong. Therefore, he has to rebuke the adversary, rebuke the opponent Rebuke this objector who says, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? He rebukes that, he confronts it, he refutes it by saying, do you not know? How could you, in your arrogance, presume to ask such a question? Questions asked out of pride or arrogance are illegitimate questions. They are questions that expose the evil human heart of the questioner. Those questions that are asked out of pride. And he here confronts it. Do you not know? You claim to know. You claim to have wisdom and knowledge. However, you don't. And I'm reminding you that you don't know. And you should know in the true sense. That you should know that it is clear, evident, that you 
Once you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Once you come to submission, once you come to obedience, once you come to a scenario where you have someone above you dictating, telling you, instructing, commanding, expecting you to do something, then you are, in a sense, a slave of the one that you are following, of the one you are obeying. In this case, he says, it is sin. If sin is the one dictating, controlling, advising, grant, or sh- uh, giving false wisdom to you, if that's what sin is doing, then sin is your master. That's what he said in verse 14. Verse 14, sin shall not be master over you. Remember we saw from Genesis 4, God told Cain, sin uh, is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. You must master sin. You must be the master of sin and beat it down into submission. But sin should not be your master beating you into submission to follow its evil desires. It should be the opposite way, the apostle is saying. And you should know that wherever and to whomever, to whatever you submit yourself, you are its slave. That's the way of life. That's the nature of things. Everything works that way. Everything. Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. 2.17 to 19. 2 Peter 2.17 to 19. Peter reiterates this very point. That wherever we are submitting ourselves, we are slaves of that thing or person. 2 Peter 2.17. Describing first the false teachers and false prophets. These are springs without water. Mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome by this, He is enslaved. The false teachers and prophets, they are the ones who speak arrogant words of vanity and they entice others by fleshly desires, by lusts, licentiousness, sensuality, he says. There are some who barely escape and others who live in error. And these people are doomed for the black darkness that has been reserved for them. That black darkness is the lake of fire and brimstone where they will be punished forever and ever. So what do they do to entrap people? What do they do to entice people? Verse 19, promising them freedom. If you live in Christ, if you are in Christ, then you have freedom, freedom to sin. However, 
they themselves are slaves of corruption. They say you are free, but they're actually slaves of corruption, slaves of depravity, slaves of uncleanness and impurity in life, all sin, internal and external sin, all slaves of corruption. Then, in verse 19, he presents an adage or a proverb. He presents an adage or a proverb, an axiom of life. The apostle does in 2 Peter 2.19. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Whether one admits it or not, whatever it might be. It might be sinful things that everyone knows obviously is sinful. Or it also might be good things that we have too much of. Right? Whatever they may be, evil things or good things, when we are enslaved to them, then we are slaves of corruption. We have indulged ourselves wrongly. So, this is obvious. It should be obvious to everyone. Self-evident truth. And here we're seeing it is biblical truth, biblical law. Verse 16, back to Romans 6, 16. If this is the case, there are only two results. According to Romans 6, 16, we are either slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Only two outcomes, only two results. He says, either we're slaves of sin, and if that's the case, death is what we deserve. Death is the condemnation. Death is the punishment. That should not surprise us at all. We've read this since Romans chapter 1. And in Romans 5.12, he starts from the very beginning of time, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. If there is sin, inevitably death is the punishment of sin. Romans 6.23, he says the same, 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin's wage is death. The wages of sin. If we commit sin, we cannot expect life, righteousness, peace, freedom, nothing. Only death. Miserable death. And that death will be physically evidenced in this life, but spiritually evidenced in the life to come. This death is both physical and eternal death. That's all. That fact should never escape our mind. That fact should terrify us. Just as many people are afraid of physical death, Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 describes how all of us, in one way or another, we are afraid of death. What will happen? How will I die? When will I die? Where will I go when I die? We are afraid of death. 
And that is right and good for us to be to an extent. It should motivate us to consider the afterlife. What happens when we die? However, when we are committing sin, often what we fail to do is to think about the gravity of sin. The gravity of sin, which relates to the death that awaits us. The gravity of sin and the consequences of sin. These are interrelated. We must consider that whenever we sin. And as believers even, not that we sin like we used to sin, but even now when we sin, we have to look at sin as the Scripture describes it. Not as our mind, our fleshly mind describes it, not as the world describes it, not as false teachers describe it, but as the Scripture describes it. What is sin and what is the consequence of sin, the punishment of sin? It's death. Who wants death? Don't we do many things to preserve our life and to live as long as possible and as healthy as possible? Don't we try when we're thinking straight? We try to live as long and as healthy as possible. But what about forever, eternity? What will happen when we die? If we don't resolve the issue and presence of sin in our life, only death awaits. That should motivate us to take all of this very, very seriously. Not to treat any sin lightly. Furthermore, verse 16, the other outcome or of obedience, slaves of obedience, resulting in righteousness. That's the other outcome. We could be, we should be slaves of obedience. Obedience should not be a dirty word. Obedience, when we hear the word obedience, it should not be a word that we despise, that we want to get rid of in our vocabulary and life. We should be slaves of obedience. When we are slaves of obedience, that is good. But much of Christianity looks at the word obedience and they are, they are very disgusted by this word. They absolutely despise and hate this word obedience. They don't want to obey the word of God. But the believer should not be that way. He should be glad. He should be happy because he knows he used to obey his flesh and his flesh produced misery. And the outcome of all of this is eternal death. Now that he is in Christ, now that he knows Christ, it should be on his mind to know what does Christ want me to do. I should want to please Christ. I should be trying to learn what is pleasing to him. The apostle uses this expression. He uses this expression in uh, Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. 
We'll read verses 1 to 10. Ephesians 5, 1 to 10, about pleasing Christ. The new man is a slave of obedience, and that model of perfect obedience is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. As slaves of obedience, not disobedience, verse 6, because if we were sons of disobedience, we would be sons of darkness and we would not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. But now that we are sons of obedience, we are slaves of obedience. We reject our former life, and now we walk in the light. And the fruit of the light consists in goodness, righteousness, and truth. And it consists in trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Upon our conversion, we begin to ask a very crucial question. What does God have for me today? What do I need to learn about God's word today. How am I supposed to conform my life to Christ today? What are my sins for which I seek help to overcome? Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That should be our daily thought after our conversion. And it should not be drudgery. It should not be an an unfragment, an unfragrant aroma for us to consider what it means to please Christ. It should not be that way. Our minds have been changed and transformed, and now we say, what do I obey? How does Christ want me to please Him today? And what is the result of obedience? The result of obedience is righteousness. This righteousness is likely the evident righteousness, he means. This righteousness is likely the displayed righteousness, that is, fruit that is obvious to the eye. This is the righteousness he means. He doesn't mean that if we are slaves of obedience, then we obtain works righteousness and then go to heaven. 
He's not teaching that. He taught the opposite. He's been teaching the opposite of that. The righteousness he means here in verse 16 is similar to the righteousness that James means in James chapter 2. James 2, 14 to 26. James 2, 14 to 26. There he said, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. That is the righteousness that Paul means right here. That we are showing ourselves to be righteous by the way we live. And we see that both in our own life and in the lives of others when we are practicing righteousness. That's the righteousness he means in Romans 6, 17. He does not mean works salvation. Another way to explain it. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. This same Apostle Paul explains himself in this common passage, often cited passage. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. That's the part where we understand he is not preaching works righteousness. He says we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift, not as a result of works. However, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. After we are saved by grace through faith and we have obtained salvation, Then, in Christ, we have good works to perform. These good works are the same as what the Apostle means in Romans 6, 16. When we are slaves of obedience, it results in righteousness. A displayed righteousness, fruit of righteousness, something that is evident and obvious both for our own eyes to see and for the eyes of others to see that we are now different and transformed in Christ. We display, we manifest righteousness. Of course, not for the sake of boasting, but for the sake of assurance of our own salvation and for others also to understand what it means to be saved. Romans 6.16 is like Ephesians 2.10 and James chapter 2. Verse 17 now, Romans 6.17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. He gives thanks to God because now we became obedient from the heart. We were slaves of sin. So the contrast is here in 17. We thank God that we used to be slaves of sin, but now we became obedient from the heart. For that, we should thank God. We thank God because He has now made a distinction in our life. The way we used to be to the way we are now. We never want to go back to the way we used to be. We never want to resort to our old life, relapse to our old life, go back to the mire and the vomit of our old life, that is no longer what we desire. 
And therefore we thank God because now we have become obedient from the heart. We should thank God for that because we didn't do it. We loved our sin. We were slaves of sin. We didn't do it. He did it because he transformed our heart by the Holy Spirit. Romans 2. Romans 2, 29. 2.29 at the end of the chapter. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. He says here that inwardly of the heart by the Spirit, we have been circumcised. We have been transformed. Inwardly, in the heart, and by the Spirit, we have been transformed. That is why we thank God. We thank God because He worked by the Holy Spirit in us, changing our heart. Now, our obedience is no longer hypocritical. Our obedience now is no longer merely pretentious, or pretentious meaning unseen and not displayed. There is no contradiction between what's on the inside and the outside. Here he says, it's from the heart. When we obey, we do it Inwardly first, then outwardly in front of ourselves and others. From the heart also means that it's not as though we do it because we're made to do it. We have to do it. We're forced to do it. That it's drudgery to us to do it. It doesn't work that way anymore. Our obedience now is from the heart. We want to do it. We love to do it. We are seeking to please the Lord. Now that we do it, this is the kind of action and reaction we have. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We had a cheat here. We had a thief here. Zacchaeus. Luke 19, 1 to 10. Let's see his immediate change of heart and a desire to obey from the heart. Luke 19, verse 1. And he entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, 
Half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus was notorious for cheating the people in taxes. He was notorious. Everybody knew about him. However, they did not know or believe that he repented and believed in the gospel. That's what he was doing when he was seeing Jesus approach. He was eagerly, gladly receiving Christ. It said in verse 6, he received him gladly. And his change of heart shows immediately right there in verse 8, because he tells Christ that he's going to give half of his possessions to the poor. If he's defrauded anyone, he's going to give back what he defrauded. Four times as much. Immediate change. Is he happy or sad to do this? Is he behaving like the rich young ruler? No, the rich young ruler went away sad for he owned much property. He didn't want to give it up and he had a begrudging, sad, despondent attitude toward it. But not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was very happy to do this and to say it and to do it immediately. An immediate change of heart. How does that come about? It comes about because the Holy Spirit worked in Zacchaeus And this is now the way we behave. When we learn something from the word, we want to be obedient to it. Verse 17, Romans 6, 17. To what did we submit ourselves? To what did we submit ourselves when we heard the gospel? We submitted ourselves to the word of Christ. It says in 17, to that form of teaching to which you were committed. To that form of teaching or kind of teaching, and where would this teaching reside? Nowhere else but the Bible, the Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. We were committed now, since it was the Word that the Holy Spirit used to awaken us from the dead, since it was the Word that helped us understand and see since it was the word that caused us to be born again with the Spirit, now we begin to love it. To which you were committed from the very beginning. From the very beginning, we became committed to that form of teaching that saved us. From the very beginning, we became committed to it. Not eventually. There is a false doctrine that says that when you are saved, you don't have to be desiring sanctification. When you become a believer, you don't have to become a disciple. You can receive Jesus as Savior, but not receive Him as Lord initially. And if you so choose, you don't have to choose, but if you so choose at some other point, in your life after that salvation experience, they say, you can, but you don't have to, you can make Jesus Lord, you can become a disciple, you can desire holiness, but you don't have to do that. 
because you're saved, since you received him as Savior. That denies Romans 6.17, because Romans 6.17 says that you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And this commitment happened upon conversion, because we understood the true gospel and we embraced that true gospel by faith and repentance. Often what we have today, we have stillborn Christians. Stillborn Christians. We don't have born again people or newborn Christians. We have stillborn Christians. A stillborn is newborn, but not alive, right? Born dead. A stillborn Christian. That's what we have because when they first heard the gospel, they heard a false gospel, and when they committed themselves to that false gospel, it didn't do anything. It didn't change them. A stillborn baby does come out of the womb, so there is some leaving of the womb, but the child is dead. In the same way, many stillborn Christians, they do something that's different than the way they used to be. That is, they make a profession. They come to church once in a while or for the first week or something. They do something like that. And so they make some change, little change. They're not in the womb anymore. They're outside and there is a, some little bit of change that happens. But there's no life because they're not true newborns. A newborn has life. We must be newborn Christians and then grow after that. And we are newborn by the work of the Word of God in our life and the work of the Spirit in our life. We became committed to the true gospel from the very beginning. A stillborn does not become a newborn whenever the stillborn feels like it. Chooses, so chooses. It doesn't work like that. The same way with the scripture and the gospel. We become committed from the very beginning, if we correctly understood it from the very beginning. If we correctly understood the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the punishment for our unforgiven sin. Verse 18, verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Freed from sin, slaves of righteousness. The clarification here must be with, especially with being freed from sin. When he says freed from sin, it does not mean that there is no sin in one's life anymore. He does not mean 100% perfect righteousness or obedience in our life. He does not mean that at all. In fact, Romans 7 will illustrate the fact that he doesn't mean that at all. And also Romans 12 to 16, he has ample aspects of obedience for us to follow. In Romans 12 to 16, those chapters Plenty of scenarios and examples for us to consider to avoid sin and practice righteousness. He illustrates and instructs us in those remaining chapters of this very letter. 
He's not saying freed from sin means you are perfect. Another false doctrine known as perfectionism or sinless perfection teaches that we are no longer sinning after conversion. It's not true. He does not mean that here. He means we are freed from the penalty of sin because God has freed us from the power of sin. Now, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we have power to overcome sin and we are no longer objects of the wrath of God. We used to be objects of His wrath. We're not objects of His wrath and punishment. No more. That's verse 18. No longer under the power of sin and no longer under the penalty of sin. That's the sense in which we are freed from sin and now slaves of righteousness. Let's pursue righteousness. Let righteousness be a good word in our vocabulary. Let obedience be a good word in our vocabulary. Being enslaved to God, pleasing Christ, may these be good words in our vocabulary. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.